diplomatic inside and I'm sitting down with Mike Musalem, who's CEO of Edwards Life Sciences. You've been the CEO now for, of Edwards Life Sciences for 22 years. Yes. And we're here to talk about some of the challenges that you faced in heading this company, as well as, of course, opportunities and accomplishments. So I want to thank you, first of all, for this wonderful opportunity and going with the theme of getting personal. Talk a little bit about how your upbringing has shaped your career and where you are today. Yeah, well, thanks, Marianne. First of all, uh, it's a pleasure to be speaking with you today. I'm honored to do it. I grew up in Gary, Indiana, uh, so it was a steel mill town. And actually, I, I spent my summer working in the steel mills to help pay for my college education. And very fortunate to come from a family that was a very warm, loving family. I was one of three boys, always worked. Uh, and, uh, it was a, it was a hardworking kind of neighborhood that I was from where a lot of people working to pull themselves up. So I, I learned to appreciate the value of hard work, uh, and learned the importance of having a passion for what you do and, and listening to others and, and understanding others. I also had an older brother with Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. And so I learned a lot about achieving your potential regardless of where you're from and appreciating others and some of the obstacles that they had to overcome to achieve what they have. So you have two more brothers, is that is that correct? So one other so I had two brothers. I was one of three boys. Yeah. And I understand you have been incredibly involved in philanthropic work and continue to do so. Can you talk a little bit about some of your uh, causes and what's dear to your heart? Sure. Uh, I just feel very fortunate uh, to have a career where I've been able to earn money and be successful beyond what I ever imagined or ever dreamed. And uh, having the opportunity to give back is something that I take very seriously. So uh, coincidentally, my wife also had an older brother with Down syndrome and actually one of the centerpieces of our philanthropy is to give back to those with Down syndrome, particularly mm -hmm. uh, adult Down syndrome that need some independent life, need better health care, are areas that really become a key focus area. Beyond that, obviously also engaged in organization that relate to the help that I got when I was growing up, whether it's trying to do something nice for places like Gary, Indiana, or do something nice for the college where I was able to get an engineering degree, or and generally support those that have a willingness to work hard and move up and need a little bit of a break in life. And so I think about all those, uh, and been quite engaged right here in Orange County to help this community become a vibrant community that's going to have a bright future ahead. People may not understand that there are some parts of Orange County that's very successful, and there's other parts of Orange County that really need a hand up. And so trying to make a difference in our local community is something that we're also quite engaged in. Can you talk a little bit more about that, the communities that need a hand up and how you're involved with that? Yeah, it's been... Uh, It's been rewarding. Uh, we particularly have taken this on from an Edwards perspective. You know, here we have Edwards with a beautiful headquarters in beautiful Irvine, California, but not very far from here are our families and schools 
that have communities where they're food insecure and they don't end up graduating from even high school, let alone college, and they don't end up having bright futures. And we say to ourselves, okay, how can we help those that are actually from a, from a distance perspective, not very far from us, but a great deal away in terms of their uh, economics and their potential. And so uh, we've done a number of things without the community. We work very strongly with the United Way and American Heart Association. The list is quite long, are all the, the charities that we support in the local area. One that I'm most proud of actually is Washington Elementary School, which is an elementary school not far from here where... Boy, it's really tough. I want to say 70, 80% of the kids are food insecure mm-hmm. and they don't have secure homes. Uh, and our employee base here is just embrace them. And um, they do things that are charitable for them, but probably the thing that's most impressive is just the way that they engage with them and try and open their eyes to a future of science, technology, engineering, and math that would stimulate them to get excited. And so uh, whether it's little lectures in the classroom or building model rockets together or having them come to campus and experience what life is like here, uh, just a chance to try and inspire these kids for yeah. a better life. And I believe that's one of the big missions at Edwards Life Sciences is for the entire employee base to give back to the community and to charitable causes. As it, well. it is. So we, we have some basic things that we think, you know, try and uh, define ourselves. Uh, we think about trying to do big things to change the practice of medicine and give better futures for patients and trying to be uh, have extraordinary quality and extraordinary integrity or have a great place to work where all employees are respected. But this other part of giving back to the communities is something that we take very seriously. Let's be givers. Let's give back to the communities more than we ever take. Let's have the communities that we live and work in say, boy, I'm glad Edwards is here. They make us stronger. Since we're on a positive note, what are what would you say are Edward's biggest accomplishments? Well, uh, that's a good question. You know, I uh, I'm very proud of the culture here. Um, this is something that maybe doesn't get talked about that much, but I, I think it starts with culture. This idea of really declaring that we're here because of patients. That's why we exist. Helping patients is our life's work that it's always patients first, that it's our priority, is something that's ingrained with our team. And in many cases, that's why they come to Edwards, Mm -hmm. because they want to do something important in their life, like help patients. So this is core to our culture. We also have a culture that prioritizes innovation um, and uh, taking chances to do something big, like change the practice of medicine and then backing it up with evidence. Uh, I'm very proud of that culture, and I, I think it's strong and it exists very well here. Of course, um, this very humbling goal of actually changing the practice of medicine, I'm, I'm so proud of what we've done, for example, in areas like transcatheter aortic valve replacement, to actually be able to routinely replace valves around the world in under an hour and have patients go home in a day or two uh, has just turned out to be a remarkably positive development for patients with aortic stenosis, and I'm, and I'm so proud to be a part of that. And then I'm also proud of the fact that as a successful company, 
we've had the ability to create a foundation where we give back. And so we, we have a special part of our foundation's work, which actually the bulk of our foundation's work called Every Heartbeat Matters, where we actually decide that we're going to have impact on uh, 2.5 million underserved patients by 2025. And we've got a bunch of great philanthropic partners helping us, almost 50-plus, um, and we're making real progress on that. So I, I have much to be very proud of. Pascal Precision was recently approved by the FDA. Can you just briefly talk about what that means for the company, how it stands on, in the competitive arena, and what your plans are? Yes, yeah, so Taver really went after one of the biggest structural heart diseases out there called aortic stenosis. Mm-hmm. And this is where your aortic valve fails because of circulating calcium. And so that's had a big deal. But there are many, many patients, and some would argue more patients that suffer from mitral regurgitation or leaky mitral valves or leaky tricuspid valves. And those have turned out to be very difficult engineering problems to be able to address the leaks of those valves. We feel like the time is right now to be able to apply technology to be able to repair and replace mitral and tricuspid valves. So the Pascal is the first U.S. approval of a system uh, that is commercially available now to address mitral valves that leak. There's one other competitor that's already done this. Abbott, and we're very pleased to be able to bring Pascal on the scene, and we think it'll be welcomed by the customers that are there. We also think, though, that these kind of patients and these diseases are not going to be addressed by one technology, that it's going to take a toolbox. And so we're not just bringing Pascal, but we're going to bring replacement technologies as well. And then we also have a, a bunch lined up for the tricuspid valve. And so we have, I think, just in the area of mitrals and, and tricuspid, probably six or seven pivotal trials going on right now. And the early TAVA data will be presented in 2024, right? Where do you see the growth in the U.S. market of, of TAVA? Yeah, so um, TAVA today is indicated for people that have severe aortic stenosis and symptoms. Uh, we would argue that's an outdated notion. Now that there is a minimally invasive procedure like TAVR, the idea of symptoms doesn't make any sense. It would be like telling a cancer patient, oh, you have cancer, we'll treat it when you feel bad. Mm-hmm. Like, like, no, the aortic stenosis is what's going to cost you your life if you're not careful, and so you should treat people when their aortic valve closes to one square centimeter, which is the current indication, and not wait for symptoms. So we've run this large clinical trial where patients are without symptoms, uh, are being randomized to either being watchfully weighted, which is the current standard, or get TAVR. And we'll see what group is doing better at the end of two years. That's the early TAVR trial. That's the study that we look forward to seeing results in 2024. We think that'll be groundbreaking because we think it confuses both patients and physicians when you introduce this idea of, oh, you have to also have symptoms because it's difficult to know, oh, is that symptom because I'm just getting older or I have something else wrong with me or is it related to my aortic stenosis? And we can take that confusion out of the system. Would that be the first TAVR system then on the market the trials went successful and you did win approval for asymptomatic patients? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so and that would be significant, and there may be as many asymptomatic patients as symptomatic patients. So it would be, it'd be a significant advancement. 
Let's talk about some of your biggest challenges in leading this company. Mm-hmm. Well, we've been fortunate that we've been growing. Yeah. Um, and to one of the things that we always talk about and we think about as a board and as a company, how do we maintain this culture of staying innovative and staying patient-focused as we get bigger? And new people come in and they bring all their own ideas and so forth, but also we want them to really embrace the culture. So this is one that has stayed a, a constant challenge. Uh, and also this idea of staying innovative. Uh, as you get larger, do you let systems creep into the company that causes people to get more conservative and not really reach for big innovations? And what goes along with these big innovations is also failing. Uh, do you do you decrease your tolerance for failure, and you know if you're going to be a bold innovator that failure is part of it. So maintaining a culture, uh, we think, is really important, one of the greatest challenges. Since we talk about culture, we're still in a pandemic. Some people would argue that was at the tail end, but no one really knows. How has that affected the company, the culture of the company, and how has it changed your own priorities? Yeah, I mean, the the pandemic was... Oh, remarkable. <laughs> the, the, the impact that it had. And there was no playbook, right, for what we were going to yeah. deal with. And every day was a, was a revelation, was a new story. We were all learning so fast. And we needed to rely on our culture because there were no rules. Yesterday's rules were out the window. Uh, I, I considered it a culture test and I was so proud of the way that our employees responded to this. Um, this was a moment where we said, remember, your first responsibility is to patients, and our employees stepped up. So uh, across the supply chain, um, they came in every day, and they continued to produce. We're fortunate to be the global leader, in many cases by a large margin. So if we weren't there, um, supply would dry up, and it would dry up fast, and our employees knew that, and they showed up. And our people that go to work in hospitals every day to support procedures, they did the same. And in many cases, uh, at their own risk, because there was a lot of uncertainty related to the pandemic and, and COVID, uh, but they found a way to be safe and fulfill their responsibility to patients, and I'm so proud of them. It's uh, it's one that uh, is truly humbling to me. Now, obviously, we, like everybody else, have tried to learn how to operate more remotely and yeah. faster and so forth, and we've learned a lot of lessons that have carried over to today. And you know what? It's not over, is it? Uh, we're still dealing with the pandemic, and I feel like we're still learning from that and still adjusting as a company and as a society to what life is going to be like living with COVID. What is your stance in terms of the need for employees to be at a company, hybrid working, working at home? Do you have a mixture of all of them, or how do you see that? Yeah, the the short answer is yes, we have a mixture of all of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, matter of fact, I don't know how CEOs do it that say, okay, for the whole company, we're going to work three days a week, uh, Monday, with Tuesday, and Thursday. Uh, we have decided, and actually the tendency as a leader sometimes is to want to grab for more control, but I think in moments like this, we're almost better to be able to trust our leaders uh, and trust our employees 
to come up with the right solution. So we said, you know what, why don't you think about what is the best way for you to accomplish your goals? Because mm-hmm. um, we know it's so different if you're running a manufacturing operation in Singapore than if you're running an R&D project uh, in Irvine or you're trying to support patients uh, in a faraway hospital. And so we really turned it back to our leaders and said, you should decide, you know, how much needs to be full-time, how much should be hybrid, how much could be fully remote. And we actually have uh, a quite a variety that's available to our employees to be able to seek that out. And I think we're still learning uh, about what really works best. So I don't know that we've We've really finished this project. It's one that we're still adapting on, but we have a wide variety of practices across the company. How has the pandemic affected your own priorities in your personal life, if you don't mind me asking? Um, well, early on, um, I would say I personally probably focused more on my own health than ever before. I, I found myself traveling less than I ever traveled because typically I'm going somewhere every week. And so now I was home. I was eating home cooking, which was very healthy. Uh, I was getting good sleep every night without any time zone changes. Uh, I was doing regular exercise on a daily basis and probably got healthier than <laughs> I've been in a very long time. And it was a reminder of me about all those good habits that sometime can go away. Um, but it also, um, and I, I don't know, maybe I'm dating myself a little bit. It also was a reminder to me of how much value that I personally get from personal interaction with people. Because when we did have the chance to travel again, I found that the conversations that I had, the depths of the conversations, the relationships, the trusts were stronger when we were back in person again. And so... Uh, I personally have found that to be very rewarding to be re-engaging as we have, you know, sort of come out of the worst of the pandemic. Can I ask you what your favorite foods and exercise methods are? <laughs> sure. So, um, so I have a, I have a Lebanese heritage. So you might wonder about the name of Salem. So all my grandparents okay. came from Lebanon, turn of the century. So I was very much raised on that kind of food, that Mediterranean diet. Mediterranean. And so that's my thing. And that would be my go-to. Uh, but you know, I, uh, I like all the good things as you might imagine. Uh, I do a variety of exercise. So I'm fortunate to have a trainer, uh, that I go to and that's a combination of things like you know, stretching and uh, posture, but also some weight training in there. But I also run and I do a lot of, I do some big hikes. So I, I do a variety of things to try and just stay active and I'm outdoors and I'm going all the time. Uh, my wife tells me I never sit still. So maybe that's some insight. Did you have time to read some interesting books or are there any book recommendations you would say are must reads for other CEOs or leaders? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, and this might be controversial, but I probably don't get most of my learning from books. Uh, I'm one of these people that learns by doing and learns by engaging directly with people. I mean, when I go on visits and I and I meet new people and go to new places and get exposed to things, I just feel like I learn so much from those kind of experiences. Now, I won't say that I haven't learned a lot from books. I remember early on uh, when we were forming Edwards Life Sciences, I was inspired by Clayton Christensen's book, The, uh, the Innovator's Dilemma. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, 
you know, he sort of was arguing why market leaders couldn't be the innovators, and I was convinced to prove him wrong. Uh, but even though I have tremendous respect for Clay, he was, uh, you know, he's a remarkable man, uh, both his mind and his heart. Uh, but uh, so, so, so some books had impact on me, but I'm one of those experiential learners. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can talk a little bit about your favorite places to visit. Mm-hmm. So... And I and I'm not making this up and just trying to be politically correct. I really enjoy the variety of places that I get to go to, and um, it's a privilege of being in a global medical technology company like Edwards is that I get a chance to experience people and places from around the world. So I've been, you know, probably in almost all the countries of Europe, just about all the countries of Asia, been around the Middle East a little bit, just uh, been across the Caribbean, across Latin America. So it's been so stimulating to me. And uh, one of the things that I love most is to actually go native uh, when I'm there and have people take me and share, you know, what do they like to do? What places are they proud of? What, you know, share their food and their drink with them? Mm-hmm. And um, I feel like I gain a lot, uh, and I've, it's taught me so much uh, about people. Uh, in a way, everybody's so different, and in another way, everybody's so the same, right? Uh, and it's, so it's been a remarkable experience for me. You know, when I think about I'm a when I think about just personal vacations, then I'm probably more of a beach guy uh, than I am. You know, close, go on the side of a mountaintop. Mm-hmm. So maybe that gives you a little bit of insight on the personal side. So are you the Anthony Bourdain of traveling? You had your choice. <laughs> I probably am. I mean, I really have. And I think it's made me a better person, right? Uh, so, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a blast for me. You know, we, we talked about your work and, and, and a little bit about, about your private life. I kind of would like to circle back to, to work. When you hire talent, what are you looking for? Soft skills, hard skills, a combination? What stands out to you? Yeah, so um, this idea of cultural fit uh, is not something that uh, we take lightly. So, of course, people must have the technical skills to be good at their job, but it's not sufficient. For them to be able to fit in a culture where we really prioritize patience and innovation and so forth is so important. Um, I love people that are different than me. Uh, I have my own style, and... It's really healthy to be surrounded by people that just are different and think differently. I know it makes us better because it's too comfortable to fall into a group think. I especially value people that are learners. I feel like the the world is changing so fast. The people that are overconfident that they have it all figured out, um, I say to myself, ah, maybe not. Um, I just think there's too much changing at any point in time and people that are open-minded and curious and learners are things that uh, mean a lot to me and and I also just uh, like people that are independent thinkers with their own original ideas and not just regurgitating those of others but depending on what the job is if you're looking for a leader um, this idea of someone that brings others along and they're less focused on themselves but uh, count as their accomplishment those that they brought along, those that they've developed, those that they've grown. Um, those are the part that I think is very special. Right? 
What has been the toughest decision in leading this company so far? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I don't end up dwelling on that. Maybe I mentally block those out, those tough <laughs> decisions. I mean, the decision to spin out of Baxter in the first place was a big decision, mm -hmm. you know, because we weren't a particularly successful business, but we had big eyes and big hopes and big dreams that we were going to build a special company. Acquiring PVT back in 2004 was a little scary. That was a lot of money for us. We actually had to borrow money and so forth. And we really, to some extent, we're going to disappoint our most important customer group, the cardiac surgeons. And so it was a pretty risky, scary move. Um, but as big as those were, just the smaller decisions along the way on whether we should discontinue a program are the kind of things that challenges me on a regular basis. Because for every time you hear a program say, oh, that should have been canceled two or three years ago, we knew that it wasn't going to be a winner. I also know that there's winning projects that faced adversity and could have been shut down several times, but people decided to persevere and they found a way through the problems and solved them. And so this idea of should we stop or should we keep going, I find very challenging. And it's one that we try not to delegate, but to keep at the most senior levels of the company and say, okay, well, let's take this one on and make serious decisions. And if you're going to innovate, you constantly have these kind of decisions. Those are the tough ones for me. And what advice would you have for other CEOs, maybe even startups, you know, in, in making those tough decisions, also given the economy we're in right now? Yeah, I don't think that you can make them alone. I think you owe it to yourself to listen to a lot of voices, the believers and the non-believers, and to personally get involved and not delegate those to somebody else and not... Uh, Not, not hand it to somebody else and say, well, I didn't make that decision, but actually own the decision and uh, do it with full rationale. You know, the biggest thing on when you discontinue a program is how you end up treating the team that was engaged in that program, because in many cases, they have put their heart and soul into that innovation. And to respect that and not in any way to have that team feel like they were failures, Uh, just because the program is discontinued, but to create a climate where they come away saying, yeah, this didn't work, that hurt, we tried, but we know that we're still respected. We mm -hmm. know that uh, given another chance, I'm going to take my learning and apply it and make it work. Um, that's really important if you're going to have an innovative culture. Yeah. Adamant is just around the corner again, mm -hmm. and I had the great privilege to moderate a, a panel discussion with you on, on the panel. Mm -hmm. We talked a lot about supply chain issues. Yep. What other big topics this year? Would you mind telling us what your priorities will be at Adamant? Sure. So um, there's an inclusion and diversity summit, and I think um, we're having much more conversation about that at the industry level. And it kind of, it could, for me, it kind of starts with patients. We know that we're leaving a lot of patients behind. There's, there's groups that are underserved that are out there that maybe never get access to the technologies that come from the med tech industry. And what are the reasons for that? Is there, uh, is there something wrong with the system that serves those people? Are they being served by doctors? 
that looked like them and talked like them and that they're comfortable having relationships with? Is there sufficient clinical data that's being generated by those groups? There's a lot of really thought-provoking questions that say, you know what, we probably need to improve in terms of the way that we operate. So we'll talk about that. I'm going to be involved in a CEO Unplugged session. Our uh, Lifetime Achievement Award winner this year is going to be Lester Knight, and Lester is a longtime friend. And um, I don't know. I, we haven't decided yet. I, I think it's going to be part roast. Uh, we'll have some fun uh, celebrating Lester. And uh, it's also the 10th anniversary of MedTech Innovator. So okay. it'll be nice, and I think it's so important because it's the lifeblood of our industry are those innovations and so I love to see the celebrations that are associated with that. Is there anything you'd like to add? Um, I'll just say that I feel very fortunate. Uh, I would have never imagined that I would have the privilege to be able to do what I do for a living and to uh, actually have a an important role here with this company that is having big impact in the world. Uh, I feel like uh, sometimes leaders get outsized credit for the good things that happen. And uh, when I think about the good things that have happened in Edwards, I think about the incredible group of people that I'm surrounded with on a regular basis that have just, you know, put smiles on the faces of patients around the world. And that uh, that's what keeps me going and that's what gets me excited. Thank you so much for the conversation today. I, I really enjoyed it, and I know that our listeners will enjoy it as well. Thank you, and I look forward to seeing you in a few weeks. Okay, thanks, Marion. My pleasure.